Welcome to Game Dev Stories, an interview show where we interview industry veterans and indie designers about your favorite video games and the people who make them. Today, Nolan Bushnell, founder of Atari and the father of video games, joins the show. Uh, no further introductions really required. Nolan, how are you? I'm good. Uh, always having fun, working on projects, building games. Uh, same old, same old. So let's begin with your background. Where did your game development story begin? Well, you know, in some ways, it, um, I, I started out really with board games and then chess, and then I moved on to Go. And, uh, and then um, I put myself through college working at an amusement park in the games section. So, you know, throwing balls, knocking down the bottles, that kind of stuff. So that was, mm. and I had a couple of arcades. Um, I was made manager of the department. I had about 150 kids working for me at 20. <laughs> <laughs> so it was kind of my MBA on the on hard knocks, but uh, but I knew the economics of the coin operated game business from that arcade experience, and so uh, you know I've often said that uh, you really never know what your skill set is going to bring you to. Mm. Um, and so the only thing you can do is just have a lot of different jobs. <laughs> you were already in like a managerial role at 20. Like what in your life set you up for that kind of entrepreneurship and leadership? I think that, uh, I, you know, I, that's a great question because, you know, I don't know for sure, but oh, sure. I, um, I think it started a little bit when I got fascinated with electronics mm. and if you're going to be a geek in the 50s ham radio was really the only way out and so i became a, a ham radio operator in in you know when i was 10 years old and uh, mm. and everybody that was that you were talking to were adults and so in some ways i became a poser because nobody sure. wanted to talk to a kid <laughs> so I I tried to adult myself, if you would, um, mm. and and I think that uh, that helped. I also had a very strong entrepreneurial streak very early. My mother over dinner said, "We've got too many strawberries. We always had a little garden out back of our house." Mm. And it was just kind of a throwaway line. The next day, I went to the grocery store with her and wandering around and i noticed that they had you know strawberry baskets for 50 cents a piece mm. and i thought to myself hey we got some of those baskets at home so we went home i took all the baskets we had and it just saved them in the garage and filled them full of strawberries and and marketed them door to door and i in an hour I'd made eight bucks sure. in, a world, in a world where my allowance was 25 cents a week. Okay. So you're already learning how to enterprise and uh, with the resources you have available to you. Um, I'm yeah. picturing you on your ham radio trying to get these strawberries sold. It's true. Well, I just, I did the strawberries, you know, of uh, course, door to door, you know? Yeah. Yeah. What does Atari mean to you when you founded it? What was your um, vision for what Atari would be? Well, in Go, Atari means it's a 
It's a polite warning to your opponent. It's a little bit like check in chess. Mm. And I always thought that would be a a very interesting name. And I don't, it was short and it was easily pronounced. Um, but, you know, the, the Japanese, where they'd say, ah, Atari, a very good name. Hmm. But too boastful for Japanese. <laughs> okay, yeah. And it does seem to be like something about like the intersection between like Japanese technology and American technology as video games were coming into like a coin-op uh, formation there exactly yeah what makes a good video game i know that you've talked a lot about uh go is there some component of that and can you explain the concept of bushnell's law as you've called it well bushnell's law is easy to learn hard to master mm. and and uh it, it kind of has its roots in the coin because nobody ever reads the instructions so if they could not learn how to play the game by looking over somebody's shoulder or having it be intuitively obvious, it never you'd never get the second quarter. Hmm. So, so the easy to learn had to be part of that dialectic. What did but, you learn from Go that you felt was important about game design? I, I think that it it's a, it's a matter of taking the right level of, of challenge. Hmm. You know, um, Go, unlike most other games, is a game of balance. Like, the best win is won by a half a point, not won by 20 points. Right. If you, you know, you're building walls in Go. And if you try to build, if you try to win by that 20 points, that means that somewhere along the line, you have taken a risk by building a weaker ball than you could have. Mm -hmm. Therefore, exposing yourself to an invasion or, or, or a breach. And so why take that risk when you're not benefited by it? You know, just try to win by half a point. Mm -hmm. um, Atari 50 was one of the most interesting games last year. I played with my six-year-old and we went through a bunch of these games, but... She kept coming back to Pong. Is there something like so identifiable and preserved about Pong and like, I guess, like the foundational elements of video games? Why do you think that sticks with us? I think that it is the essence of simplicity. And there is something about, you know, you take items away, take items away. How do you? preserve the essence by removing everything around it. And I think I think Pong is one of those things where you almost can't remove anything from it and still have it be Pong. <laughs> what other lessons do you think game designers could learn from games like Pong and the classic Atari designs? Well, I think the, there's a couple of things. Um, you have to have increasing levels of difficulty as the player gets more and more skilled. That's one kind of metric. You cannot, if you try to make it harder by just decreasing the time, that's kind of, that's that's the ch cheesy way. That's, that's mm. 
that's the inelegant way of making a game harder. The elegant way of making a game harder is to give the opportunity for the person to outgreed themselves. That is, you kind for example, in Pong, the most difficult shot to re, to return is the one that is the most the steepest angle. Mm-hmm. But in order to get that shot, you have to hit it right on the corner of the paddle, which is also the place where if you get it slightly wrong, you miss the ball. So you, so the reward of making the shot that's hard for your opponent to return opens you up to the risk of missing the ball. So it's mm-hmm. kind of the balance, the balance of risk reward, which becomes a very important characteristic of gameplay. Are there any lesser known Atari games or even just projects you've worked on? Does it have to be Atari that you think deserve a broader audience? Is there something like that you'd want our readers or listeners to uh, go seek out and see what you were all about and what you made? Well, you know, I did a game three or four years ago called Saint Noir, which Mm. used the Amazon Echo. And it's about a board game that is also voice driven using uh, the Amazon Echo ecosystem. And so it's a game about interviewing suspects. The uh, suspects have to tell the truth, but the perpetrator can lie. Mm -hmm. So it's all about asking questions and finding out who's lying. And it's a fun game. It's called Saint Noir. It's available on Amazon. and, And what that is, is I'm always looking for the edge of technology. Mm. And so I felt that the smart speaker world could give sound effects and depth to um, to board games. And so that's that's what we did. And, and, and it turned out to be pretty successful. We got we I think we got the number one innovation award at uh, the CES that year, Consumer Electronics Show. Um, right now, I'm doing some work. I'm using uh, the Amazon Echo ecosystem to build some escape rooms for a project I'm working on. And uh, so that's kind of fun. I, I think the smart speakers have a lot going for them, as does AI, which is kind of cutting edge. And, uh, and I think uh, I'm always looking for singularities. You know, why is tomorrow going to be vastly different than today? That's where the fun stuff comes. <laughs> I have listened to and watched a lot of your interviews last week, and a lot of times robotics comes up. Are you interested in, like, a technology-forward approach? Do you begin with, like, a, a model of what something could be or how we interact with it? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm on the board of a self-driving car company called Perone Robotics. Hmm. And uh, we've been talking a lot about a personal robot. And, you know, it, it's one of those things I, of all the projects I've worked on, the most dissatisfaction that I have in life is the, the my, I mean, I just lost a 
a lot of money trying to build a personal robot. <laughs> so I, I know I want to have grit, but it just yeah. feels so battle-scarred. <laughs> <I'm not sure. laughs> what are the things that you've attempted that, that have and haven't worked about a personal robot? Well, the, the number one by by far was a uh, was was the robot, the Anderbot project, and then I did a couple of other things. Hmm. I did another one which was kind of a Chuck E. Cheese redo in which I had uh, terminals at all the tables, and so you could play games at the table and uh, order food and drink from the terminals. And it was a it was one of those things. My tables cost me about ten thousand each. By the time I got them all outfitted with the technology, hmm. and if I'd have just waited two years, I could have done that with an iPad for you know right. one hundred twenty bucks. Yeah, it was one of those things where it was really bad timing. We built three, three stores. They did pretty well but not enough to pay for the overhead. And so we ended up closing it down and I had to lick my wounds on that one a little bit. You know, a family friend texted me today. They said, I, you know, uh, I mean, I didn't prompt it at all, but it was a picture of their son and I at a Chuck E. Cheese 30 years ago. And uh, we were standing in front of the, like, you know, animatronics. And I was thinking about how embedded that concept is. I went to PAX this year and there was the Five Nights at Freddy's with a wraparound line. How do you feel about that? Is that just another imitation? There's like a Five Nights movie coming out this month. Uh, do you care about that? Well, you know, I, I, I tend to be focused on what I'm working on, not what I've done. Hmm. That sounds funny, but I. <laughs> am I sense. proud of what I've accomplished? Yeah, uh, but I think, I think my family is much more important to me than my my business things uh we still have fun my kids are grown now and now it's we're in in for a batch of grandkids and you know life is really rewarding um but i think uh you know i'm i'm still in, involved with uh chuck e cheese i'm still involved with atari mm -hmm. i had a conversation with wade rosen from atari yesterday and and uh i just got an email from melissa McCarthy from uh, Chuck E. Cheese yesterday, and so you know they're they're fun, and I I still like to you know give ideas here and there on on various problems and issues, and and uh, you know it's all good. It feels like Atari and Wade Rosen might have a good concept on preservation of the brand now, based on the game last year and just how the brand identity has been. How do you feel about that and What's important about preserving video games? They're not always preserved well. Well, I'm really happy that Wade is in control right now. The guy mm. before was just kind of a, you know, I call him, he had a rag, rag picker mentality. Uh, <laughs> and I think it's in good hands. And, and you know, when you, you know, your, your legacy is you want it to be well-treated. And I think he's doing that. Uh, the uh, the thing that I'm always looking for is I, I I'm I I like the science fiction and mm. the whole idea is you know if you want the future to happen faster do it yourself <laughs> <laughs> and 
So I'm constantly looking for how can I make the future happen faster. What interests you about that? You've mentioned the you know singularities in the future a few times. What what interests you most about the future? That it's better than now. Hmm. You know, I mean, you can you can go into the noir, the post-apocalyptic kind of, of future, but in general, um, I have a span of time, and I know the difference between the life that I had in the 50s versus the life I've had in the 2020s. And, uh, you know, it's and it's better, <laughs> you know. And so uh, do I want a self-driving car? Absolutely. Um, you know, the whole idea that, that self-driving cars is more important than world peace because more people are you know, dying on the highway than in wars. Mm. Um, you know, stuff like that. Um, so why not just constantly and 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 then, you know, do I? I just want the hyperloop to be built. I want to be able to go from Los Angeles to New York in forty minutes or thirty. Um, possible in the hyperloop? Why don't we mm. build it? You know. That kind of thing, and uh, and you know, in in order to afford that, we have to, you know, really eliminate a whole bunch of jobs. And I think the singularity is going to, uh, you know, AI is going to free up enough labor to build the hyperloop. And I think the hyperloop is going to be important. And I think a lot of the jobs that will be eliminated because of AI were pretty boring jobs anyway. So win-win. Uh, Seems to me that like technology's potential is really about connecting us. Do you think all the video games and even the projects like Chuck E. Cheese have been about that for you? You talk about your family and maybe life is better now because you're connected to a family. Do you feel like that's true? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I um, I think that there there's kind of connection happiness and there's project happiness like i'm mm -hmm. very happy working on projects uh but um i also enjoy hanging out with my grandkids you know that you you forget sometimes the power of innocence mm -hmm. you know and and uh how surprising life is to them and and you feel you know like you're a mentor and a and various things and, and it's good well we're a film end game site so i just have to ask there have always been rumors about like a biographical film about your life um often with dicaprio being attached uh, uh there are now so many of these films succeeding on the market the last year there's the one on tetris and really good pinball movie earlier this year uh, do you feel like the time is right and would you ever want to do that and have that uh what would, what would it say about your life if there were a movie you know, they've got, you know, that thing has been in the works. It was all hot until there were two Steve Jobs movies that came out that did not do well. Right. And one of them was still really good. Uh, one of those yeah. Jobs movies. Yeah. And, uh, but they didn't make money. And so all of a sudden they said, well, if Jobs can't make money, I don't think Bushnell can either. No. <laughs> <laughs> what about now? Is it is it heating up again now that uh, brand movies? Yeah. You know, I mean, 
I, I, I turned all that over to my wife. So mm. she's curating the people who are looking for life rights and various things. So it'll probably happen. I, I'm not sure if it'll be in documentary form or narrative form. Well, we'll be there for it as a film site. So I'm sure I'll have to do something about this. And I look forward to that. Um, I think your life is so interesting and full of potential. Um, uh, what what was the most interesting moment for you, like in the development of games? Was there a moment that changed that you thought, this is it, this is a future? I think the epiphany for me was, and I'm not sure if epiphany is the right word, but mm. I can remember being surprised at how good the first rocket ship I was able to put on the screen looked. I just didn't expect it to be so. I mean, it turns out that the digital signal that we were creating was so much cleaner than anything that came over the air. Mm. So the clarity and the pixelization was just spot on. It was just robust. And, um, and I didn't expect that. There was almost that robust cohesion in a way that pixelated games look. Um, do you yeah. think, you, we've talked about innocence too. Do you think maybe the uh, game industry has lost something about innocence and childhood play? No, but one of the things that has happened is as the ability to create prettier images... I feel like sometimes the look of the game has been amplified over how the game plays. And I think one of the things that the old games have is we were laser focused on the timing and the gameness of it. Um, because our graphics were so shitty, you know, we we had to we had to make them really fun and timed right. And I I see things now that games now that are beautiful, but the gameplay is maybe at eighty percent, not at a hundred percent. And what what did you start with with like the objective of an Atari game if you were designing gameplay or mechanics? Well, it was it was. Back to Bushnell's Law, easy to use, mm -hmm. easy to learn, hard to master. And, and one of the hard things in that is what is the rate at which the difficulty grows? Because what, what you really want to do is keep optimism alive. That is, if, if you just kill a person off immediately, mm -hmm. You know, that's disheartening and they quit playing. But you you want you want them to always feel like they were just about there. You know, one one of the reasons that bingo is such a historical favorite game is that everybody in the room has four in the row when somebody gets bingo. Mm. Just mm. just a whisker away. Oh gee, I I just missed it by a little teeny tiny bit. 
somewhat recently you've worked on edutainment games and what about that market interests you and do you think there's a future for that kind of educational video game i think it's huge i think that uh i look for things that are kind of broken and education in the world not just the united states in the world is very broken because you know when i was a kid School was the most interesting thing happening. The alternative was watching the corn grow and the river flow. <laughs> mm. <laughs> sure. You know, now school is the least interesting thing compared to, you know, movies that are, you know, 10 million a minute <laughs> production values. Yeah. Video games, million a minute production values. So, the life on screen is so much richer than life in the classroom that it's no wonder that kids are just bored out of their minds. Do you feel and that I, the kids maybe learn so much at home and from their technology now that it's kind of uh, changed their learning and the classroom hasn't adapted? Absolutely. And, and, and I believe that schools will are failing and if they're not fixed, they'll become terminal. Mm. And I think that our software, which gamifies learning, can bring the, the magic back. And, you know, my view of the best way, I mean, a, a classroom of 30 kids and one teacher is untenable. Mm. But... If you have two-thirds of the class working on the computer, you're down to a 10-person classroom. That, that's, that might just be manageable. So a teacher, by using the technology, can actually make their life much more tenable, their skill set more appropriate for the group that they're teaching. So, so I think that um, this bifurcated part online part in in person is a very important thing and um, that's what we're working on and, and i think we're going to do it also turns out what you do is much more memorable than what you do, what you see mm. uh, and uh and so we think we can teach kids 10 times faster. We think we could go through 100% of the curriculum for high school in about six months. Yeah. Which opens up the door to all kinds of extra stuff where we can teach financial literacy, mental health, you know, proper, you know, narrative construction, uh, programming maybe even video game design, as well as entrepreneurship. All of these things are skills that kids should have in high school. And if you get, if, if high school is effective enough, they don't need to go to college. They just start hmm. their career right then. No student loans, making a lot of money right away. All good. In your history of game development, you've worked with a lot of great people. Who is your favorite game designer? Who uh, impressed you the most as a programmer? I think programmer is the wrong thing. There were mm. three guys 
that were very important. One was, of course, Al Alcorn, who was my uh, VP of research at Atari. And he, mm-hmm. he single-handedly was responsible for, for the Pong on the chip. Um, you know, just a, a smart guy, cutting edge all the way. Another guy was a na- guy named Steve Mayer who basically did an awful lot of the work on the 2600 uh, and made it as good as it was. A guy named Joe Decor, um, who was a very important, I think he's a professor in Washington State right now. Hmm. Uh, but you should talk to Joe. Joe is another... I'd, I'd love to. If you have a connection, I would love to talk to Joe. <laughs> So uh, what was the initial like workplace culture there? Like you had all these incredible people and they were so responsible for kind of founding a video game market based off like the coin-op philosophy, but what workplace culture allowed that to happen and be effective? Well, I think we, we thought of ourselves as kind of a hippie company and we wanted to do things differently and better. And so we started, you know, the dress down Fridays and then dress down anytime, <laughs> you know. Sure. And it was really, it wasn't about dressing. It was about focus. And the focus was outcomes. Hmm. If you focus on outcomes and you say how you get there doesn't matter. And so, for example, some people work better at nights. If they want to come in at three and leave at midnight, if that gives them outcomes, great. Why should I mandate mandate a an eight to five or a, a nine to to seven workday? Mm. Um, and the the other thing is that uh, we basically had this attitude of work hard, play hard. And so we would always have parties when we had made a significant accomplishment, hit quotas, what have you. Mm-hmm. So this balance of, of working and playing, which I think is a good workforce structure. And, and it's been widely copied, which means it must be working for other people too. <laughs> I'll talk to people from like Valve and they talk about their open floor plans or uh, people from id software or whatever about a, how, you know, they were just in a room together and it was also about playing the games. How do you, do you feel like that's important in game development to keep it like close to the game, even in development and the attitude you approach a project with? Yeah, because, you know, games today, they generally have a, a soundtrack, a music track, you know, the art and the game are somewhat sometimes separated, the, the digital artists versus the digital coders. Mm-hmm. And I think that collaboration is important. But, you know, today, a lot of there's a lot of remote stuff that is working really well over Zoom. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got, like my educational company, we've got, our CTO is in Istanbul, and, and a lot of our our programming is in Romania and Pakistan. You know, sure. <laughs> as, well as, 
as well as Southern California and and Pennsylvania. And it seems to work. What would you tell someone getting into the industry today about game development? What, what, what could they learn from your career? I think um, if I were to do some advice, I would tell them to not do it unless they can figure out something that is very different than it, what anybody else has. Hmm. And to not think about gameplay alone, but think about monetization structures. How do you make money doing this? You know, having a good game that nobody plays and nobody or or will only but won't pay for it, you know, that's that's like, you know, making a painting and putting it in your basement. Mm, sure so you have to put on a business hat as well as a creative hat one of the things that you you should also be aware is that game design is being speeded up by ai like a lot Mm. and dropping the cost of ai so so what you the skill you need to do is, since you're a newbie and don't have experience, and maybe you know a little bit about Unity or Unreal, um, but you're not going to be proficient. Mm. So while you're gaining that proficiency, you've got to also become, in this new world, proficient in AI. And how do you query AI to get the, the AI to write you the code you want? And that's what's happening right now. What's the last good game you played? Do you still follow the industry? Oh, yeah. I think Fortnite Battle Royale was good. Hmm. I mean, it it represented something that really got, got your heart racing. But, you know, the problem I have is I'm getting old. And you lose a millisecond of reaction time every year that you're over 23 years old so i'm hopeless at anything that is like a first person shooter which is very depressing and Um, that's so many games now um oh yeah i think minecraft was brilliant uh both educationally and fun wise um not so much focused on speed but just on ingenuity i like that a lot um oh the, I I I find that there's a lot of these little games that you can download free to play and then you find out, you know, 4 months later that you've spent $100 on it and power <laughs> it. <laughs> sure. Has that happened a few times for you? It. Huh? Has that happened a few times for you? It has. Okay. <laughs> You're just one of us too. Uh, we we're, we've all been there, I think, at least once. Yeah. Mm. Um, uh, what are you working on right now? Is there anything you'd like to pitch our audience? Yeah, it's got a thing called Moxie, which is a gaming platform for. If you think you're better in a game, I play a better game. We can both wager. There's a 
token involved where you have a, a utility token. Mm-hmm. And so I'll bet you 10 mocks that I'm better at Fortnite. You bet 10 mocks. The smart contract is created. And upon the, um, it, the game ending, the winner gets transferred 19 mocks and uh, we keep one. Hmm. Uh, which games are utilizing the platform now? Uh, we're we're doing a bunch of games. Um, you know, just going to the website. We've got uh, we're signing up a new game every week, okay. and and so uh, it'll be uh, you know there'll be something there for you. Are you guys developing the games, or are you like a, a getting license for for other people's games and? Platform. For other people's games. Okay. What I didn't mention is the one that we keep, uh, 60% of that goes to the dev- the game mm. publisher. So we only keep four. The other company I have is a company called Exodexa, mm. which is my game, my educational game platform. And in fact, I've got a book coming out. It's dropping on the 17th of October. It's called Shaping the Future of Education. Um, which is kind of our, how you gamify education or, or learning. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm working on a thing called Atari Labs, which is a new kind of an arcade. Should have one open next spring. And uh, that's about it. Well, it sounds like you're keeping yourself incredibly busy. So thank you so much for making time for this show. Well, my pleasure. And say hello to your fans. And everybody go out and go on Amazon and and, and get the book on education because I want to get on the bestseller list. And if you uh, if you get a pre-order on Amazon, it'll be there the day that it drops and it'll really help our stats. I'll leave a link also in the the podcast description in the site there. Thank you so much, Nolan. It's been an absolute pleasure. It'd be fun. Uh